scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and it begins on page 1,499 in the blue Bibles that you'll find in your seats. Before I read, please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege now to listen, to read your word, Pray that by your spirit that you would give us wisdom and understanding and courage to be your disciples. Pray that you would bless Josiah as he speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's part of a prayer that many of us pray, not only because Jesus told us to, but because we are bombarded by temptations every single day, and we know they can kill. We're not likely surprised anymore when we hear of another church leader caught in moral failure, maybe a affair. I won't name any names this morning. But even in my own uh, uh, classmates, one of my own classmates from uh, Tyndale, his church plant reeled when two of their worship leaders were caught in an affair. And there's huge ripple effects. This act or actions was not something these people, it was something these people knew was wrong. Even something they may have talked or preached against, but something they still did. And these kinds of stories thrill the media, don't they? But they sadden us. Just look at the damage done in those families, in that church, and those who hear the story. 
It reminds me of, of an African proverb which says, when two elephants fight, the ground gets hurt. But we're not too quick to throw stones, are we? Because we know that we also live in a world of temptations. It's like we are fish swimming in a sea of baited hooks. We know we shouldn't bite that worm, but it just looks so good. We do things we know we shouldn't, like eat those extra few fries, buy that gadget we don't need, look at that web page we shouldn't, or get that last word. Temptations aren't always at a, at a mind level. They're at a heart level. They tap into desires, what we want, good or bad, and often move us more than our thoughts can control. We live in a world ripe with temptations, and it's tiring. It's hard to stay strong. So what do we do? How do we stand firm? The media loves to tell us stories of failure, but this morning, let me tell us one of success. The story of a man who was tempted in his most vulnerable time, but stood firm. A man who not only encountered temptations, but the devil himself. And a man who not only overcame temptations, but the tempter himself. As you can guess, his name is Jesus. As his disciples this morning, we are his apprentices. We are looking at how he did what he did to learn from him and to imitate him in our daily lives. In the passage just prior to this one, we see Jesus emerge from the Jordan River and some incredible things had just happened. The heavens were torn open. The Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove and he hears his father say, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's a really refreshing passage and it's a favorite of many, including me. And it's all about identity. The father affirming Jesus' identity before he did anything. Jesus hadn't had a chance to prove himself, but God had already said, I love you and I see you as my son. But then we read that Jesus, likely with hair and clothes still dripping from the dunk in the river, is led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And, and some, we just wonder, how could a good, loving father do that to his son? In a sense, that this first verse can really trip us up from really experiencing the passage. So I want to help us look at two uh, two of these potential stumbling blocks, um, wilderness and testing. Two things we don't maybe naturally like, maybe can't imagine would be anything but trouble. Maybe if you're like me, you tend to see the desert as a hot, dry, dusty, barren, God-forsaken place. Nothing to see, nothing to do, nowhere to go, no thanks. How many of us in our, in our recent vacation went to a desert to relax? You went to sand, but likely sand near water. Not sand, just lots, with more sand. So we see deserts this way, but my question this morning is, does God? And in scripture, we see that God seems to have an affinity for deserts. He likes the place. He sees the desert very differently than we do. And so being trained scripture readers, we think through how the desert 
shows up in Scripture. Where are times where God has led his people or different persons into the desert? Maybe Moses' 40 years in the desert of, of Midian might come to mind, or the Exodus, or when Moses, again, spent two 40-day periods uh, by himself. The prophet Elijah often kind of lived in the desert, but also spent 40 days trekking to Mount Horeb. John the Baptist is in the desert. Jesus, we see Jesus in this passage in the desert, but also again later through his ministry in solitary places, perhaps deserts. The Apostle Paul encounters Jesus on the D Damascus Road and then exit, exits stage left and heads to the desert for years. Throughout the years, again, solitary places have played important roles in the lives of people like Mother Teresa, St. Benedict, St. Francis, Martin Luther, John Wesley, George Fox, Thomas Merton, Martin Luther King, the list goes on. Henry Nouwen goes as far to say, we cannot avoid going to the desert if we want to make God our only concern. In scripture we see that, that the desert is a hot, dry, dusty place, but it is far from God forsaken. We are not deserted by God in the desert, we encounter him there and intensively. The desert is where God gets us all to himself. It's a place of identity, intimacy, and preparation. Israel, Israel's identity as a people of God was formed in that hot place. They went from being the slaves of the Egyptians to being the family of God. And as we know, it was a process that took many years. Elijah, Moses, Jesus, Paul were all prepared for their mission in the desert. In other words, in the desert, we learn deeply who we are and become ready for what is next. And it is here for Jesus that the identity-affirming words of the Father that he had just heard began to sink deep into his heart. His time in solitude prepared him not only to stand firm against the tempter, but also step out into ministry, as we see later, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this tempting piece. We read that, Jesus, that the Spirit brought Jesus into the desert to be tempted, which, by the way, is better translated to be tested. But still we think, how cruel. I mean, who really likes exams and tests? The psalmist David ask God to test and examine him, but we seem to shudder at the, idea, at the idea, but why? As I ponder this, I realize that perhaps when we read the word test, we see it as a negative thing. It's like we see God as a teacher, even a cruel one, surprising his student with a test, even waiting to see him fail. Maybe what comes to mind are memories of the anxiety and pressure of high school or university exams where you just spent the last few days cramming as well as the night before just hoping that it would somehow still be in there by the time you know the pen hit the paper at the exam time but stepping back for a moment we see that tests aren't meant to fail someone or trip them up really tests are just there to show what's inside what we've learned what we've taken in what we've been taught what's what's inside comes outside in a test insert test run, test drive, recital, performance, all good things. 
The test, this text begins with an allusion to another time of testing in the desert when Israel had the chance to show God just how much they trusted him and how much they were committed to him. And it really could have been a glorious thing. It could have been a wonderful recital of faith. In Deuteronomy 8, we hear God speaking through Moses to the Israelites about their time in the desert. It says, uh, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you. Why? In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. God tested Israel in the desert many years ago, and again, he gave them a chance not to trip them up. He gave them a chance to show them, or to really wow him with their hearts. But sadly, as we know, they did not do so well. Instead of an A, they got an F. And so God, being a gracious teacher, allowed them to take the class again. For if they couldn't trust or serve God in the desert, the promised land, honestly, would have ruined them. It's kind of like in learning to drive, if you can't handle the safe confines of the parking lot, how are you going to handle driving downtown Hamilton with its many one lanes? Israel failed her, desert, her first desert test. In this text, we see how Jesus does. And to be clear, as we catch this, Israel was tested by God. Here, Jesus is not tested by God. It says Jesus is tested by Satan. God knew his son's heart and knew that he was ready for whatever Satan would throw at him. God was not throwing Jesus to the wolves here. He was giving his star student a chance to shine, to show how ready he was to do his mission. Okay? Hopefully I've you know, those are less of a stumbling block now. So, so let's get to those temptations. Let me start by, by, by saying that while I think those three temptations are each unique, in some ways different, they also could be summarized as one basic temptation. And I would say all of Satan's temptation, tations, temptations have this in common, and so do these. Because he isn't up to anything new in these temptations. It's really uh, a spin of what he's been doing since the Garden of Eden. At the heart of all of Satan's temptations is an invitation to distrust God, to distrust his goodness, his character, his promises. Satan knows that God will not pull back from his relationship with us, so he tries to get us to pull back from our relationship uh, with him. So he aims at the foundation of any relationship, as we know, which is trust. If you break trust, you break relationship. You break relationship with God, and the world unravels. Um, Satan is really an expert at the smear campaign. You know, just listening to some of the recent political speeches, it's turned from, from a lot of politics to just taking fire at the, at the other opponent. And, and Satan is, this is what he's been doing ever since uh, the Garden of Eden, just trying to smear this talk against God, show out God has said this. God has said he's good. God has said he's loving. Really? You believe that? Um, yeah. And, and the thing with Satan is that he always begins subtly. With Eve, it was, did God really say? Are you sure? Are you sure he said that? And depending upon how we respond, he moves from subtle to strong and increasing the pressure to disbelieve God. 
His question turned to an outright denial later with Eve. Surely God won't. And in these questions, Satan tries to move us from being trusting children to independent orphans, trying to make it on our own as though God was not here for us. The truth is Satan is no dummy. He, is cra- he has mastered his craft of being crafty. So in Matthew, in this text, we see that Satan bides his time till Jesus is weathered by the heat of the desert and famished. I don't know if many of us have tried fasting for different lengths. You can imagine after 40 days, things would be a bit foggy at the least, and your stomach would just be so, so hungry. And so Satan, like an expert chess player, makes his first move. If you are the Son of God, turn these, uh, tell these stones to become bread. Satan plays into the reality of Jesus' intense hunger and invites him to do what? To entrust God's provision. God's not going to take care of your daily bread. He doesn't care about you. Plus, you can do it without him. Use your power to serve yourself. Again, Satan is asking God's son to act like an orphan. And while I I used to think that Jesus um, was at his most vulnerable at at this moment, um, very weak with hunger, I see it a bit differently now. With the help of, of Dallas Willard and others, I've come to see that Jesus, yes, he would have been very physically weak in this moment, but the fasting and the prayer had made him really strong. He was at his strongest spiritually at, in, in this time. And those things, that the solitude and fasting would have sunk his sense of identity so deep that while this temptation was tempting, Jesus was ready to say no. To pull another African proverb, uh, it says, you don't make your shield on the battlefield. Jesus had made his shield before then. He, he, he was ready through, through prayer, through, pra- through fasting, through knowing who he was. Not to mention the fact that due to his Jewish upbringing at that time, he had likely memorized all the first five books of the Bible by age seven and the rest of the whole Old Testament not too long after that. So through that kind of scripture memorization, scripture was at the, at the bottom of his heart and on the tip of his tongue. And so wasting no time, Jesus countermoves. It is written, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, um, as we read earlier, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus had learnt the lesson the Israelites failed to grasp. Where Israel stumble, stumbled, Jesus stood firm. So this morning, let me ask, what is what does this temptation look like in your life? How are we tempted to, to not trust God with our daily bread or to, to, or to provide for us? Maybe we feel the pressure to get a better job or just work a few more hours. Maybe we stay in a job too long. That's not really good for us. Not trusting that God has a better job for us. Maybe we think too much about our savings or retirement plan. Twice, my wife and I have had to do fundraising as missionaries in order to receive income as we've worked overseas. We don't always see the fun in fundraising. It can be a bit daunting. 
Um, but each time, God provides in small and often surprising ways through people we would not expect, um, just to show that, that through his people, he is providing and that he is trustworthy. God has shown himself again and again trustworthy in providing for our daily bread. After this temptation, Satan wastes no time and takes Jesus out of the desert to the city, to the temple in its highest point. Here, he ups the ante and aims at Jesus' sense of sonship with more intensity. Since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan pulls out his own, it is written. Reminding us that Satan knows Scripture very well, but will, but will misuse it to trip us up. He tear, he, and, so, and so he quotes the verse perfectly, but as well tears it out of context and misuses it. And here, Satan is basically saying, okay, Jesus, you think you're a good son and that your father is so good. Well, why don't you prove it? It's easy to say God is good. Why don't you show it? Now we'll see if he really cares for you. It's like he's saying to a, to a child with his father nearby, if you really think your dad cares about you, why don't you jump in front of this coming car? It's pretty crazy. And as a wise, secure, trusting child would say, I don't need to. I know he would if he had to. But I'm not going to put on a, sh a show for you or for anyone. In this temptation, temptation, Jesus shows us that he trusts the Father's protection as well as his provision. And he does not need to prove it. Again, he quotes from Deuteronomy, showing that he is strong where Israel had been weak. He learned from their mistakes and would not repeat them. I know many of us can think of stories where God has protected us. I can remember hearing a story from a family at New Hope of when they were camping, and without them knowing, one of their youngest, their, 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 one of their youngest childs fell into the campfire. And it was seconds later before they could pull the child out. She should have been badly burned, but miraculously, her hair nor her skin was not burnt, and she didn't even smell like fire. God had protected that, that little girl in that campfire. Or a friend of mine in, in Nicaragua was walking on the sidewalk when suddenly she saw the picture of a falling roof tile. Thank you for the water. She's walking, and all of a sudden she's had this picture in her, in her head of this, of this falling roof tile. And she stopped to kind of ponder that for a second. And then seconds later, in front of her, a roof tile did, did fall, which would have hurt her and her young children. Those are just two stories. There are many more that each of us could tell of how God has practically protected us. God does protect his children. And Jesus knew it. And he refused to budge. And again, with the second one, I invite us to ponder, what does this temptation look like in your life? Do we trust God to protect us financially, physically, spiritually? Not that I'm saying that, that bad things won't or don't happen, but I do believe that in the midst, God preserves us. Even the worst thing that can and does happen, death, cannot separate us from God. I recall driving to Nova Scotia for my, for my sister's wedding where I was to preach on Psalm 121, a psalm about God's protection. As we were driving in the passing lane, out of nowhere, 
this truck came and rear-ended us um, and before speeding off. We really should have been pushed into the ditch, but I was able to kind of maintain control and safely pull over. We got hit, but in the midst of that accident, we were safe. God had, God had protected us in the midst of that accident. The third temptation is the most blatant, in some ways, outrageous one. I, I think this may have been the one most tempting to Jesus. It was the easy way out. Jesus knew that God, that uh, saving God's lost children would be very hard, exhausting. He was aware that, that his mission would involve being rejected by his own people, having no home, having no family. Everything about that, that Jesus wasn't able to have a family, which he may have really wanted to have because of his mission. Abandoned by his closest in time of trial, being, bit, being beaten, spitten on, dying a horrible or painful death. It's not a mission most of us would sign up for. I can imagine the easy, out, the easy way out would have seemed really tempting. Don't sweat, don't sacrifice, or give up your life. I'll give you the kingdom. Satan was offering Jesus the kingdom without the cross. <clears throat> a temptation that has never lost its appeal. But as with the other two temptations, what does Jesus do? He wastes no time. Each of these, he just wasted no time. Do not give Satan any, any room and immediately responds with scripture from, from Deuteronomy. Um, and he says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This being our greatest command, or one of our greatest commands, and our joy as believers. No one else is as worthy of our love and service and sacrifice. But nothing is as fun or as meaningful or as, or as uh, intensely great as serving God. With God, we experience heaven. With Satan, there is only hell. And Jesus is clear with us as well. We cannot be his disciples unless we also take up our crosses like he took up his. Sacrifice and pain is, being part, is part of being a disciple. If we are unwilling to embrace our crosses, we cannot follow him. Jesus is not being mean. He's just being honest about that. Um, and I, in that way, Jesus, I would say, is as honest as my Dutch grandmother. He just puts things really straight. He makes it clear. Being a disciple, seeking the kingdom, I'm sorry, but it's going to involve pain. And uh, it's a pain not that we seek out, but it's a, a pain that we accept and embrace as part of the journey of being disciples of Jesus. And so again, what does this temptation look like for each of us? How have we been avoiding our crosses instead of taking them up? In what ways do we choose the easy or convenient over the sacrificial and costly ways of God? What loves or habits or things are holding us back from fully seeking God or serving him? In the third temptation, we see that Jesus trusted the ways of God as well. There are not three Ps. There's provision, protection, and the ways. But Jesus shows us in each of those that, that he trusts God more than to trust Satan and his lies. And so after the, the third response, Satan walks away defeated. Jesus stood firm for us and does so with us now. So as I conclude, 
I know that I haven't given you a solution, an easy fix to, to our life of temptations. Um, because as one church father says, the only person who promises, th- there's only one person who promises paradise in this life, and it's not Jesus. Because Satan paints death as life and promises heaven, but then gives us hell. Jesus is clear. Follow me, and you will find life in its fullest. And so while we don't find uh, an easy way out in this passage, Jesus shows us how to follow him in overcoming temptations. One, I can kind of think of, of three ways of how to become stronger in resisting temptations. One, to follow Jesus in doing this, we must allow God to deepen our identity by practicing disciplines like solitude and fasting. These disciplines strengthen our body and our soul to stand firm. As we know, our, our, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. These disciplines help strengthen our, our flesh to say no in those times where we, we just so eagerly want to say yes to those things we know are wrong. So the disciplines is one way to grow, to grow in resisting temptation. Number two, we need, we need to fill our minds and hearts with scripture through memorization and meditation. Again, this is not easy. This, this requires planning. This requires sacrifice. But I invite you to pick a passage to memorize even this week. Pick one and then keep picking more. Thirdly, in all this, as we stand firm, and stumble. Let's not take our eyes off the one who has experienced the depths of our temptations and has yet overcome the tempter. His spirit is within us and he's ready to help us stand firm. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you know what it is like to be tempted. You were tempted in every way that we experienced temptation and yet you stood firm. Jesus, uh, we thank you that we do not have to give in to these temptations that seek to destroy us. We trust you. We trust your provision, your protection, your ways. Lord, we just ask that in this week, you help us to be aware of the temptations and to respond quickly and decisively with, with uh, Scripture. Lord, we just thank you that, 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 uh, that you have overcome the evil one and that, that we will someday reign with you and be free from all this that seeks to, to, uh, to wreck us, all these sin and temptations, death and disease. We will be free because you have overcome. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.